Hello and welcome to the Research Connection Podcast, the show that brings current expertise and cutting-edge research and connects it with users in the community. Okay, welcome. And could we each take a, just a couple sentences and let us know who you are and how you come to this topic? Jane, would you like to start? Sure. I'm Jane Carpa. I'm Associate Professor at Brandon University in the Faculty of Health Studies, specifically in the Department of Psychiatric Nursing. And I've come to this topic via research that involving families' experiences with acquired brain injury. So that's what's brought me here today. Okay, and Brianna? I'm Brianna Lawrence. I'm an assistant professor in educational psychology. I teach pre-service teachers, child and adolescent development, and also in the counseling program. A lot of my research is looking at mental health and educational contexts and how to collaborate more with families and the school together. I have a, a clinical background working in mental health settings and do some counseling with families as well. And I'm Jackie Kirk, and I'm the chair of the Department of Educational Administration and Leadership, and one of the hosts of the podcasts. And I'm Michelle. And I'm the other host. I'm Michelle. I'm the director of Brandon University's Center for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies, or BU Cares for short. So I have a first question to get our conversation started. Uh, I'm curious about what are some of the current trends in the field of mental health? Um, well, I would say one of the trends that we hear a lot about is increasing anxiety and depression in children and youth. It's increasing, mm -hmm. and I would say that families are becoming more and more aware of it and also aware of things like the lifelong effects. And schools are really working hard to try to figure out how to address mental health concerns. And it can start really young, right? Like for children, you yeah. mentioned. Yeah, I would say like... Um, for anxiety, some like you could have an anxiety diagnosis as young as seven, for example, mm -hmm. and you could see symptoms or concerns earlier as well. Mm -hmm. I, I think to add to what Brianna is saying is significant mental health issues are arising for our children and, and adolescents. I mean, every day there seems to be some report in the paper about suicidal ideation, mm -hmm. how uh, with our First Nations people, this has been a prominent concern and issue that's been happening on reservations across the country in their homes is this whole area of lacking in mental health supports. And, and also um, suicidal ideation is, is and suicide mm -hmm. is, for whatever reasons, is, is highly been increasing in, 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 in communities and things like that. So it, it, it's huge. Mm -hmm. So the trends meaning there's huge issues. Like if anything, the use of social media has mm -hmm. even highlighted much more of these mental health issues, bullying, whatever. I mean, it's, we, it, we're inundated with it, it seems, on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. There's been more written to around hope and hopelessness related to climate change and mm. all the exposure to world events and news that, mm. you know, decades ago children weren't watching or reading the news or at least, you know, confronted with it in the same way as they are now. Mm. And I know both of you address this topic and how it relates to families, mm -hmm. not just individuals. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Okay, that's a, that's a big <laughs> It's a broad question. I mean, it's a very broad question, and the broad answer is most assuredly and definitively families do get impacted. 
and it's not i mean the literature likes to talk about families in terms of if there's a chronic concern such as whether it's a mental health or a chronic health issue uh, the literature speaks a lot about the caregivers and and what happens the burdens and the coping that happens to caregivers but my research and probably Brianna's is suggesting that it's not only the caregivers that are affected but the caregivers are also part of the same family so whether it's siblings grandparents spouses whatever whatever the configuration of the family unit is most definitely they are impacted in some way in living with whatever the issue is yeah and i would say like when families and caregivers have children that have different types of mental health or academic or learning concerns there is certainly an added stress some of the research that I did that asked people questions around this talked themselves about experiencing anxiety or depression, but also that actually helped them to understand the experience that their children were going through mm -hmm. as well and through their own experiences when they were well supported and able to access useful and culturally relevant services, they felt like they were in better positions to advocate mm -hmm. and, and empathize with their young people mm -hmm. too. So. Mm -hmm. I think more specifically, I mean, my research that I've just completed with families living with experiences of acquired brain injury is, yes, these families are impacted and somewhat negatively. I mean, there is added stress. There's added difficulties in trying to figure out coping for some of the families. It's a remembering almost like a pro post-traumatic thing because they go back to the actual incident. So they're sort of remembering that. They're also, for families, a huge thing is on role reversals so that they also begin to recognize. So let's say the person affected by a, a brain injury in the family, let's say, is the, is the mother. Well, then who takes over her role if there are younger children, siblings, in the home, usually the family then has to go through role reversals and role upheavals as they try to sort out who's going to take over what functioning that's within the family. My research also in indicates that families, though, are very resilient and are strong. And once they, and they can do this, and they can actually, with very limited supports, they figure this out as well. I mean, but they also have lots of other family supports, but it is, but they can, they are resilient and they are strength-based. I'm missing, though, because I know there's other families due to other family dysfunction issues that my research didn't capture. So families that are already broken apart, that mm -hmm. uh, for various reasons are disconnected from each other or no longer speak to each other. And the other thing is, for some families, what's the definition of families? Now it's even broadened. We don't, for families, when we talk about families, it's just not legal or biological defin definitions anymore. Mm -hmm. There's families that can be created from people living in your neighborhood, in your community that don't have to be bio or legally related at all. So I think even the construct of family we need to consider and, and broaden our scope as well. It's a good point. What happens when multiple diagnoses, diagnoses, Di diagnoses, diagnoses, it sounded weird when I said it the first time. <laughs> what happens when they intersect? Like you, you were mentioning before anxiety and depression 
you can't just say, oh, this person has anxiety, so this is the solution, right? Like it's a lot more complex than that. Mm -hmm. So what happens when, or in the case of brain injury and what you're doing in your research, Jane, that also can coexist with other mo mm -hmm. mental health diagnoses, right? So Absolutely. what how what happens? I guess that's my question. What happens when those multiple diagnoses intersect? Well, I would say they, they usually do intersect. <laughs> yeah. um, very, very high co-occurrence. Anxiety and depression in particular very, very mm -hmm. commonly go together. And with children, I was saying that there can be a developmental trajectory. So it can usually younger children will experience anxiety and well, if not supported or treated, it can become depression, mm. which can also be linked to suicide ideation, things like that. Some of the stuff I look at is the co-occurrence with behavioral and learning right. achievement. Yeah. So it just gets more complex, mm -hmm. right? And it requires approaches that collaborate with families and multiple systems and multiple specialists as well to make things really effective. Yeah, the experiences will vary, but also like negative educational experience can exacerbate issues and create patterns of difficulties, right? So mm -hmm. children, for example, with mental health concerns or behavioral that have been identified with a behavioral diagnosis, for example, have really high high school dropout rates. And can experience a lot of like they might not be achieving well because they're they're just really struggling. So it can create a really negative cycle. Yes, I would like to add with what Brianna has has nicely stated. And I because often one of the co-occurring things we whether it's for children, adolescents, and adults is anxiety, depression and addiction and mm -hmm. uh, substance mm -hmm. use, which is huge. And right now, again, that's another huge yeah. mental health issue <laughs> totally. that mm -hmm. we're having in Manitoba. Again, everybody's aware of the meth crises and all of these things. So it's, it's really exacerbated. My comments about what happens with multiple diagnosis, I'd like to link that with comments about how the medical system deals with this. The medical system, which we are under for a lot of years, deals with things on a very sort of individual, mm -hmm. piecemeal basis. Mm -hmm. So that for families, it makes it, I think, Brianna, you can speak to this as well, it makes searching for supports mm -hmm. or answers or help within systems can be very frustrating with families, whether it's even adults or for children and adolescents, because the system breaks it down. Yes. So for one thing, there's a whole separate system for adults versus children and adolescents. So number one, you got to know which system you're going to try to get into. And then there's different systems. There's the school services yeah. system. Then there's the hospital emergency system if you've got a child who is going through, is suicidal. And then there's another system for attention deficit yeah. disorder. Like there's all these different clinics and there's these different places to go, which for a family trying to find resources can be a hugely problematic and frustrating. Yeah, and they, they all move together, right? And so it's really tricky when someone works from a more kind of remedial approach on just one concern when they're all linked to each other. They're all linked. Yeah. And, and it's very hard because some systems and entry into some treatment systems yeah. Well, particularly for co for substance and co-occurring mental health issues, they'll say, "Well, you got to deal with the addiction first before <laughs> yeah. we can." So it gets 
we don't, as a system, we don't, I don't think we effectively really manage these things very well because we do sort of isolate them into their own little pieces, which I think can be frustrating for those of us working in the system as well as for families. So to answer your question, what happens with multiple diagnosis, it could often lead to multiple more frustrations for families trying to intersect and try to get some help and resources and some support. Yeah, and to access, and Jamie would know even more about that, to access free kind of community-based mental health services, especially for children, you have to have a fairly severe experience of what's going on to be able to access those. So sometimes they end up having to wait until it's severe enough Mm. to get a free service. Or you can sometimes get some support within the school, but if you're doing well academically, but not emotionally, they'll think, well, you're doing fine because your your grades are fine, but this the child might be really struggling yeah. with anxiety. Yeah. And so, yeah. But then they don't yeah. fit the criteria to see the community mental health service either hmm. until later. Right. Yeah, so our system is, and, and our tr- access to it is, is very yeah. sort of rule-based, yeah. <laughs> which hmm. is, which, yeah, it, which is very, I, again, I'm, I know I'm repeating myself, but it can be very frustrating mm-hmm. for families trying to access it. So some of my experience is working in rural school mm-hmm. in Canada, mm-hmm. and that really changed everything too. So I had a high school student who was suicidal, and I, you know, she was reaching out to me late at night, and I recommended her into the system Mm -hmm. but then the only time that she could see someone was like Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock and it was an hour and a half to get there and she could have her appointment and an hour and a half to get home so she was missing a whole morning Mm -hmm. of grade 11 and you know it just it wasn't workable and she was able to go there and say no I'm fine Mm -hmm. like there's nothing wrong with me but Saturday night at 11 o'clock again then she was under great distress Mm -hmm. yeah it was it was really frustrating to try to intervene into the system to get her help that she needed or to try to give her the support that she needed to be successful. Yeah, the rural context is even, it's so complex. Like sometimes there's only a few people that do the mental health work there. And so there's they end up doing a lot of the work and also doing things beyond what they may be trained for because there are limited services and there's dual relationships and (laughs) hello I was the school principal (laughs) yeah it's very very challenging so and then you don't know I mean again what crisis services are available in any one community whether there is a crisis phone line or whether Mm -hmm. you know do you need to alert the parents of this kid because you know for safety do they need to take them to the emergency you know so you're kind of triaging all of this right too all the time yeah 11 o'clock at night yeah and I did also alert the parents but yes yeah um, I really felt like once I passed the issue off that what happened afterwards was really ineffective yeah yeah no I you're not alone (laughs) with that that opinion and that experience absolutely not alone it's Mm -hmm. not isolated Brianna you mentioned earlier culturally relevant supports Mm -hmm. I just want to ask about that what does that mean what does that look like yeah well I think it that's it's very individual it depends on family it depends on the real context maybe Mm -hmm. who they're working with and sometimes accessing more services doesn't mean better, right? Mm-hmm. It's finding the right service that's the most useful mm-hmm. for the family or the individual. So always 
asking questions I think around usefulness and appropriateness are really important. So we've identified some issues with systems that don't necessarily talk to each other or that have complex barriers. If you could design a system that could support a family as a whole in your <laughs> ideal world, let's dream for a while, what would that look like? Oh, well, uh, for me, it starts with how the uh, how our medical model, I think we need to revise our whole model of treatment focus because our, mo our the medical model that we have now is, is still very much individual-based mm -hmm. and it's very acute care-based in some ways. I think we're mm -hmm. very good at Reactive. when somebody has a heart attack, they're rushed to the hospital, they get immediate treatment, things happen, they're discharged with such and such resources to go to. But when it comes to more chronic, long-term kinds of things like mental health issues, like acquired brain injury, the medical model is insufficient. And I think, who was it, the Out of the Shadows, at the Kirby Report talked about when they interviewed families, that was in about in the early 2000s, the Kirby Report for the federal government, they envisioned a model of care that actually started with where the families and the individuals were the focus right from the get-go, and families were included, and so that systems then became involved where the families were at the center and they and systems evolved around the families rather than vice versa and so in my ideal world i would really like to see something like that mm -hmm. where where families i mean we like to think i know a lot of families experiences are when their loved one was discharged from hospital they'd get like oh here's a brochure on some of the supports in your community <laughs> uh, well that's you know from a from a, prof a healthcare professional, they're making a lot of assumptions there about a family that aren't, I don't think, that helpful. So what I'd like to see is more, in, right off the word, engagement, interaction, collaboration, so that healthcare professionals actually meet with family members to decide what do they think as part of the planning process for discharge? What would work for them? How could, you know, here's what's out there, what what do you think might be useful to you and how can we help you organize that? So it's just those it's really starting with that collaboration rather than assuming that families need treatment or therapy or mm -hmm. support is let's ask them. Like let's get them on board. They're a partner here. We need to treat them far more like partners. I don't know if you can see here, but Jackie's smiling and nodding big time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think from an educational perspective it's collaborating more effectively with families. It's mm -hmm. really hard for to collaborate with families. Sometimes it feels like it's this, this new thing and you're already busy and it cre increases your workload. And sometimes people think it's beyond the scope of what they do, that they shouldn't work with families. They just work with the student. But I really think that schools and youth classroom teachers even need to collaborate more with families. And I think the onus actually goes on on us, right, as pre-service yes. education program to teach teachers and around more around relationship building and how to collaborate because we've kind of been talking about school family collaborations for decades, but it still mm -hmm. remains very puzzling and Mm -hmm. complex and challenging oh, exactly mm -hmm. yeah. i mean we can i mean the literature is out there yeah. to say that's right that collaboration is necessary and and families in the literature are saying we want to be a part yeah. of 
but what there's still tremendous barriers to actually get sort of that theoretical talk into practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you're right, Brianna. Those of us in education and in healthcare, we need to be work more into how we can get this into practice. Like, what would this look like? Mm-hmm. You know, whether mm-hmm. this is policy, administrative changes, which I think a lot of this is, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a whole paradigm shift, yeah. which I think as a society, uh, we're not there yet. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Research Connection podcast. You can visit our website for links to everything that was mentioned in the episode and for more Research Connection content at www.brandonu.ca slash bu-cares. Be sure to rate and subscribe so you can stay up to date with current research that impacts your community. Thank you.